Having recorded podcasts with both the ABI and the Investment Association earlier in the year, I've wanted to talk to the PLSA and get their perspective on current pension challenges. And as it happens, I think the timing of this podcast with Joe Dabrowski has worked out well. They've recently published proposals for pension reform, which we talk about in the podcast, as well as touching on the recent autumn statement and the question of consolidation of pension provision. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Joe Dabrowski from the PLSA, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you. We're recording this the day after Jeremy Hunt's not a budget. Uh, what do we call it? Autumn? Autumn statement, I think. Autumn statement thing, yeah. Latest variation. I got loads of invites from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the Institute for Government and the Resolution Foundation. They're all doing their, you know, next day deconstruction analysis stuff. And I, so I was chatting to my wife about this morning. I just couldn't bear to go into any of them because, like, partly because there wasn't a huge amount on pensions specifically. So there was that. But also... You know, away from all the headline stuff, you know, I mean, the, the takeaway is it's just going to be a bit of a miserable couple of years. And that's about it, really. But I mean, what was what was your take on yesterday? Yeah, I think it, it was probably a little bit quieter on pensions in, in comparison to kind of past statements, budgets. I mean, I think there's been quite a lot of them recently, hasn't there? I think there were, there were a few things that were kind of good to see. I think it was good to see the, the state pension keeping up with, with inflation quite frankly, given the risks that that might pose to kind of pensions adequacy. And we might come back to it later, some of our kind of proposals around you know, pensions adequacy and how that kind of really underpins, uh, the state pension really underpins what, what people currently um, receive or might expect to receive in the future. So given the context, I know there's always a lot of debate around the triple lock. I think in the context, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's kind of moving us up in the right direction towards that minimum retirement living standard for everybody. We still have to look at the kind of solvency two reforms that that were mentioned too. Clearly, the the agenda to get more institutional money into productive finance remains. You know, we we've, we've been pleased to kind of play a part in the productive finance working group, and you know, it's just a long standing issue. How do we, how do we use some of this capital potentially in the, in the right ways, but get the right value for money, and all those other questions. I think overall, overall, a bit quieter. You can see why why though there's so much to deal with in terms of kind of the wider economic picture and i think you know we must be cognizant of how that is going to be for people who are trying to get by trying to save over the next couple of years you know we'll have to we'll have to focus on on that as an industry as to how we support people as well there have been really positive things that some of the past ministers and have kind of focused on over over the winter you know trying to get that uptake of pensions credit which which can yeah. also be a kind of gateway into other forms of support and benefits and it's really important that people do take that opportunity and don't kind of shy away from it for, for various reasons that, that we know have happened in the past but a little bit quieter but it kind of obviously the macro picture will also you know determine other things in terms of how schemes think about kind of investments how their employer covenant might hold up on the db side and, and lots of other things so does look like a tough few years ahead, so we'll have to we'll have to work through it all. Yeah, no, agreed. Couple of things I want to come back to there, but just briefly, you mentioned ministers. Have you met Have you met Laura Trot yet? I haven't haven't met Laura yet. We had some really great interaction with Alex in his um, in his stint for those few weeks, and, and good luck to him in his new role. But um, I think hoping to catch up with with Laura soon and, and see where kind of her priorities are. 
clearly early days for her so i'm sure she's sort of getting her head around that brief and some of the things that she might want to do i think early indications that you know things like the dashboard and and, and other areas are, continue to be departmental priorities so it'd be interesting to see i wonder whether guys having lots of chats with her about what he'd like her to continue to uh, do now he's uh, in his new brief yeah <laughs> i mean i've not met her i just very recently i've seen her do a couple of live tv performances and thought she came across pretty well i was encouraged she seems she seems good a couple of things you picked out there the 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 solvency two stuff i briefly spoke to a friend at a an insurer yesterday and he was kind of quite positive about the announcement and i've i've not drilled into any of the detail at all broadly you know you think you see this as a good thing too i think that i think there's there are some good opportunities if, if it's done right clearly opening up potentially that that investment into in, into other areas if there's scope to kind of loosen the shackles in various bits obviously important element is how do you keep that saver protection still still in the system i think we probably need to have a look little bit more of a look at how that pans out in in the course of the proposals i think you know one thing we kind of possibly also hope is now 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 that eventually the kind of solvency two question has been answered to some degree that maybe that'll that'll free up the department working pensions to uh, to kind of get out it's super fun consultation because i know those two things have been kind of being talked about almost in, in parallel to some some degree, and, and that's been uh, that, those, that kind of regulatory framework around that has been sort of hanging around for a while. Oh, do you think there's just been a kind of limited policy bandwidth within the DWP to, to to cover off all these things at the same time? I think the sort of the sort of bandwidth question is going kind to of, if you change one, how does it impact the other, and, and how do the regulators think about the interaction between the two? And I think there's been some sort of horse trading is the wrong word, but there, there's been some sort of debate about how, how all those things kind of hang together, I think. So hopefully we'll, we'll see some progression on, progression on that. Yeah, we had, uh, we had Eddie Truel on, on this podcast not long ago, and he was I mean, clearly quite frustrated at how you know, his efforts to, to launch a kind of a super fun proposition drive consolidation um, that's something we'll come back to but i you know i got a sense from him he's found the the policy stasis across dwp and tpr quite frustrating i could certainly see why he would uh, i was you know the the retirement income standards that the plsa launched what a couple of years ago now 18 months ago something like that. uh yeah a couple of years ago now feels like two two three years yeah initially i was a bit skeptical but actually, you know, hats off to you guys. I think that was a really good initiative and, you know, that minimum, moderate, comfortable for single and couples. I mean, kind of broadly, sort of 10, 20, 30,000 for, for a single person. Yeah, pro- approximately. Yeah. And, the, and the rigor that went behind it, I, I thought actually has been proved to be a really useful and interesting piece of work. So hats off to you guys. In fact, I, I, I referenced it in a report I was writing about equity release earlier this year. And, you know, I've, I've seen it used in so many contexts and I think it's interesting that you use that again as a foundation for the work you did around the, the five steps. And we'll come on to that in a moment. But just on the pensions adequacy and the savings targets, what's, what's the review process? For that? How do you keep that current and topical, thinking you know, about 10% inflation and what that does to, to the numbers? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and thanks. I mean, we've been really pleased with the, the, the way that the retirement living standards has worked and has you know, been adopted by the industry, I think. Yeah, last time I looked, there was sort of schemes or usage, which was just kind of in, in the sort of 30 plus million members would be receiving comms with it. So it's it's really, really landed well. We kind of started with the kind of premise of how do you, how you kind of help people with a kind of five a day almost, that concept of 
understanding what they need because you know what we talk a lot in the industry but we don't to each other about what this all means we use technical terms replacement rates etc etc but largely to the to the average person that doesn't mean a lot and then they kind of go well what do i need in in retirement to, to be getting by on and so the retirement living standards really try and help with that just in terms of the kind of process we kind of we, we look at the retirement living standards on a yearly basis and also do a sort of deep review every couple of years of how the kind of basket and the standards hang together so this year is a sort of slightly more annualized standard review and the kind of bigger review comes comes next year where we'll kind of lift the drains up and, and really dive into everything all over again and in a couple of weeks time the the new numbers with the indexation impacts will be coming out so we'll be looking forward to kind of sharing those with people and and what they look like and kind of how they how they impact the different groups because the distribution is different depending on where you where you sit in the kind of income chain and, and because you know we, as we know from lots of the commentary over the last couple of weeks that you know certainly people on the on the kind of lower incomes tend to be impacted more by the kind of basket of goods that they might be using certainly certainly over recent year yeah interesting and then well, a few weeks ago now, back in October, I think you published the UPLSA published this document, this this kind of blueprint, I guess, this five steps to, to to better pension provision, which I thought was really interesting. So, and there was quite a lot in there around the national objectives and reform of state pension and auto enrolment review. So, just yeah, talk talk to me about about that, Joe. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Tom. This has been our sort of major, you know, our mission is to try and help everybody get a kind of better income in retirement, and so adequacy is sort of central to that and it's been a kind of a core focus for us during the year and we've been doing a lot of thinking a lot of talking and and a lot of research to kind of think about how this particularly in the kind of dc context might might change and, and be improved because we know that automatic enrollment has been an enormous success uh, in particular in getting more people into saving but we really need to kind of focus on how do we get people saving to levels that kind of match their expectations and also deliver that kind of adequate retirement in in the future. Yeah, and the various initiatives that kind of looked at this over the the years and some some of which have progressed, some of which have slightly stalled, like the um, review from the 2017 AE review. So, you know, when we kind of looked at at all of this, we kind of the kind of five steps that we're we're sort of looking at and we're consulting on, so really keen to hear people's views and the consultation closes at the end of March. So kind of thinking, okay, it'd be useful to have a national objective about what good, adequate pensions savings might look like for people. Affordable and fair, I think. Indeed, yeah, that's the that's the phrase. Well, well, well remembered, Tom. I mean, we think those are those feel like perfectly reasonable principles to kind of approach. And if we think about how do we do this at the moment, we don't really do we. We occasionally, every five years or so, we look at what the kind of state pension looks like and obviously there's the ongoing review there and some of that kind of trades off some of these questions but we don't look at in totality how how are people saving for retirement what does that retirement picture look like at at a national level and therefore are we making the right steps or interventions whether they're kind of regulatory or encouraging voluntary savings to to try and make sure that that we have that because otherwise i think we're, we're, we're storing up a quite a big problem for ourselves in the future and so the earlier that we look at it and the earlier kind of we set ourselves some some expectations then the earlier we can get about kind of tackling it i'll come back to some of the stats about where people are missing out because there are potentially a lot of people 
now and a lot of people in the future who will miss out unless we do something. The other element, kind of second step, is kind of the state pension. You know, for most people, and especially those kind of lower and, and half median earnings, the kind of state pension is the backbone yep. of people's retirement savings. For a lot of people, it makes up up to 50% of their retirement income. Yeah. In fact, yeah. more for yeah, yeah. yeah, as you say, some people, it's, it's, it's much more, it's everything. It's really important that that level of state pension is at a place that allows people to kind of participate in society. It's not at a level which is destitution or poverty or just getting by. That that isn't really kind of good enough. People need to be able to kind of actively participate. And you know, that's when we kind of look at where the minimum retirement level is. That gets you to that point and that gives people that retirement option and also that quality of quality of life, you know, within society. You're not you're not just kind of struggling to survive. And so we think really important that the kind of state pension gets to a position where it does deliver on that kind of minimum retirement living standard. Let me just, sorry, forgive me interrupting, but I just wanted to check something there. So the current minimum retirement living standard, I think, is £10,900 a year. Obviously, as you said, you know, it needs updating because of inflation. Current state pension currently is about £9,600 a year if you get the full state pension. With the inflation, it's the triple lock that was announced yesterday. That's going to take us probably a bit over £10,000 a year. So are you saying you'd like to see the state pension brought all the way up to whatever the minimum living standard objective that, that you guys have defined is? So so currently that would be the £10,900 a year. That's what the state pension should deliver. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's right. And obviously with the triple lock in place, the chances are that, that over a period that, that catch-up will happen. So it's kind of important that that, that does get there. But yeah, that's the, that's the basic premise that you, you kind of need to be at a level where you can genuinely have an adequate income in retirement. And state pension is just a touch short of that at the moment. So How, between okay. 10 and 15%. What, what's your take on the triple lock? You know, do, do, do we keep going with it forever? Do we use it until we get to that point and then rethink it? What are your thoughts around that? I think we we keep going with it for now. You know, there are, there are lots of other interactions between how the triple lock works with the state pension, which will no doubt be looked at in the state pension age review. Some of it is kind of how much do you get at what age and how does the kind of trade off between the kind of macro costs and the kind yeah, of fiscal other costs, the yeah. fiscal sustainability costs. So it's difficult in the in the current environment that we've got, but we've also got to recognise that. At present, the, the state pension is modest in comparison to some other OECD countries, and also our state pension age is higher than very many other state pension ages across the OECD too. So we, we need to kind of get this balance right for some period. We've obviously been playing catch up with with where the state pension has has lagged increases in the past. So lots of trade offs, but if we if we look at it at a principal level, should the state pension provide people with a reasonable, good basis for having an adequate retirement, then I think we probably all agree yes. And we need to just work out some of the other other details as we go too. Yeah, and a possible trade-off there is, I'll tell you what, let's just put it up to 70. <laughs> that'll, that'll square the circle on the costs, won't yeah. it? So yeah. I think it's interesting that they announced, yes, they confirm we're going to get the output from that review imminently. And, you know, I think the international comparison is interesting. You're right, we are kind of now at the upper ages relative to other countries. For decades, we've put more emphasis on occupational pension provision than some other countries have, where, where 
pension provision has been more central government responsibility than is the case in the UK. So, you know, I think there are limits to how the comparisons you can draw with elsewhere. But look, I'm conscious of state pension costs, what, about £104 billion a year at the moment. This is pretty significant sums of money. And you talked earlier on about Guy and his efforts to get the pension credit take-up improved. It's it's a complicated and expensive picture, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it kind of leads a little bit into uh, you know our third element because essentially, if you're going to have a, a decent retirement at some point, you you've got, to, you've got to fund it somewhere. So the funding has got to be a mixture of, kind of state and in this, you know, we've gone for the kind of three tier kind of approach of, of kind of regulatory and then voluntary on, on on top. And the things that we know at the moment from our analysis and, and the research that, that we've done is. You know, for very few people or, or far fewer people than we'd like. And when you stack all those things together, you're not getting people uh, up at the kind of levels where they're going to get, you know, either turner replacement rates or placement rates that are kind of based on the retirement living standards. So I think, you know, we're looking at maybe 60% of people kind of on median earnings not not achieving the replacement rate. And yeah, out of the 15 or so million people that are saving into a pension at the moment that's you know there's potentially six six or so million not on target either and you know we've seen this transition from defined benefit to a defined contribution savings world to, to a large extent and at the levels that AE are at the moment that's not going to get people to the levels that they that they need and, and that's all we need to have that kind of conversation about the timing for AE reform and how do we how do we build it out from where we are now over the kind of next parts of the decade and into the early parts of next decade in order to kind of get that timetable for AE increases up to up to ten and then twelve percent and also how to bring in people earlier into the system because that has all sorts of other other benefits as as has been well identified. So you know, we need to have that conversation because otherwise, you know, we're going to get to a point where, where some generations will, will be already that they kind of come to retirement. And actually, there isn't enough. And therefore, what happens to people then? That's the kind of a big societal question, because if you get to retirement and there's tens of millions of Gen Xs or Gen Zs or millennials, then we have a bigger problem because, you know, the share of the cost for supporting people will, will fall in other ways, whether it's on the benefit system or, or, or other things. And the easiest way to address these kind of questions, as we saw with 1995 decision to increase the state pension age and with the Turner Review and also an almond implementation, is you, you kind of more to drop the reforms far into the future. So you do it now, you implement the legislation, but with an effective date that's quite far into the future, and then people can tolerate it. And also, you know, from a political point of view, it means that the problem lands on the next government, not this one. I know that one of the challenges in getting the 2017 review recommendations over the line was was treasury resistance. You know, this is a fiscal issue. You know, there's, they were pretty reluctant to cooperate on that. You guys were talking about 12% by 2033. I mean, the other stuff, the lower earnings disregard, moving to age 18, you know, I think it was pretty motherhood and apple pie. I think most people would recognize the desirability of that. I just wanted to just kind of challenge you on a couple of things. One is whether that 12% you're talking about should become the mandatory minimum or whether we should try and use a degree of voluntarism and you know matching contributions from employers and, and encouraging people to take it up where they want to. And part of the reason I asked that question is because you've also got questions like sidecar savings and lifetime ISAs and basic rate taxpayers for whom the pension saving equation is 
only marginally more advantageous than, say, an ISA or a lifetime ISA. So I just wonder what your thoughts were around all of that. I think we'll have to look at it all. And I think that's we've got some sort of related questions in, in, in the consultation about how do some of these areas hang together. And I think there's an important element about well, coming back, going back a step to that kind of timetabling, because I think the timetabling is important to have it both in the kind of legislative framework, but also kind of puts it allows, like we did for AE, really, it allows that kind of phasing in of increases for employers and for members to kind of understand some of the some of, some of the changes and when they might come. So, so I think having that plan is is really important. And even if we don't bring the changes in for a few years, having that kind of lead in time in order to work through the issues and, and also kind of do that phasing is, is really important. I think there will, there will need to be a degree of additional kind of flexibility in, in the way that the AE system works. And clearly we'll see bits of, we've seen progress and good initiatives on things like sidecar savings. And also, you know, there are lots of questions about whether you kind of have easier opt-ups and downs in, in future in order to kind of help people save in a way that works a little bit more for, for them at a kind of personal level. And I think we'll have to have those conversations kind of as, a, as an industry. And I suspect we'll, there'll be various degrees of innovation that we see over the next decade that kind of fit along that pattern. But at a kind of basic level, I think we can't rely too much on just volunteerism because you know, in my view, we had, we had a lot of volunteerism in the past and it hasn't worked. And to some degree, you need a kind of uh, a backbone to make sure that kind of everybody gets to a decent place. And then you kind of build the volunteerism and the other option optionality ar- around that. So I think I think it will be important that we kind of get up to some of those levels because, it, you know, we should also recognise that for people on above median earnings and, and certainly into the higher earnings categories, for those people, there's also an adequacy question. And that means that they will have to save much more than 12% in AE in order to, in order to get there. Both ends of the spectrum, the, there's, there's degrees of thinking and work to be done. But I think we do need that kind of core running through the system in order to make sure that pretty much everybody gets to a good place because otherwise otherwise we're just storing up problems. Yeah, really good thoughts. And in for that latter group, the higher earners, of course, increasingly they're bumping up against the lifetime allowance. You know, that's a whole different set of problems. I think there's some... Some again, some fiscal issues around all that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all sorts of um, well, the tax is a whole other problem, isn't it? <laughs> so I'm hoping to get Stephen Timms on this podcast in the near future. I was talking to him this week about. Uh, I know he's very focused on self-employed and the underpension groups, and that's something that you guys have picked out as well. You know, there's a whole bunch of people that auto enrolment has missed. Uh, that's something that you guys are looking at in your consultation. What do you know? What, what thoughts do you have around the? The self-employed, the gig workers, the the women who are missing out at the moment, the multiple job holders, all of that. I think we we need to make the system work better for these groups of people. There are many millions of them. It's appropriate that the kind of changes are made. I think the question for self-employed has got a lot more complicated than than it used to. to in some degrees, it's perhaps one of the hardest nuts to crack. Combinations of changing nature of self-employment from what might have been traditionally freelancer to uh, encompassing lots of lots of different types of employment now, gig workers. Well, we've seen obviously massive rises in the number of gig workers in the economy, and also kind of a very much more mobile workforce in, in that in that sense too. We need to find ways to to wait to make the system work for them for people to, be able to plug in. And I think you know if we look at some of the, the kind of questions that 
impact women in particular some of those are kind of connected to employment and we need to solve the employment questions too but but we need to make sure the pension system helps people so if people want to take a a career break you know whether you're a man or woman but in particular it tends to impact women currently then the system you know has got checks and balances in it which enables people to both potentially save earlier in order to compensate in some ways for the gap that comes later but also to make sure that all the other elements of it work properly too whether it's kind of pensions on divorce or or other forms of saving and and, and a lot of that is also going to be trying to engage different groups in different ways in order to tailor how they approach thinking about their career their lifestyle and how they can save and there's a whole separate big question about how to make that work but at its basics we need to make the framework as simple and easy for people and for it to work for them without them having to do a lot of extra thinking, because that's when it works best. No, I agree with all of that. Surely HMRC has to be a pivotal actor in all of this. And I know they've been historically quite reluctant to come out to play. Surely that nexus of the, the, the tax system is currently the, the only obvious mechanism that can be used to address some of those points you've made. Yeah, I, th- I think it will be important that the, it's a really big task is to try and make the pension system, the tax system, the employment system all tally up in the most seamless way possible. But we must take it upon ourselves to try and fix what we can. You know, and whether it's things, you know, simple things like just fixing things like net pay RAS or, or, or other elements, we do need a bit more energy from some of the departments that connect in off tangentially probably in their view compared to some of their um other core tasks in order to in order to address these questions because we we do need to make it work for people because otherwise you know it does impact real world savings but does have a bigger impact on on society too but you know you're not going to get a good pension but also equally if you're kind of the workforce system doesn't work for you that that does have other consequences which will lead to kind of lower productivity and outcomes yeah so so some of the supply side issues and productivity issues that we now see manifesting themselves all over the place in the uk you know come back to issues like this and actually i was really encouraged to hear the chancellor talking more about education his autumn statement yesterday as as one way to address that. Sorry, I'm going off the tangent. Yeah, no, no, it's it's always a way, but I guess sometimes more financial education is always seen as the silver bullet for various things rather than sort of some of the kind of practical steps that departments or all the industry can take to to kind of resolve things for people. But to to your earlier point, the national objectives that you talked about, those, you know, what are we trying to get to with all of this? If you can if you can articulate and define that more clearly it then makes getting engagement on some of these hard-to-reach groups a more clearly defined challenge, doesn't it? You know, in order to get to these national objectives, we have to solve these problems over here. So I can see, I can see how you know your five steps kind of all link together in, in that respect. Absolutely, because if you can say, look, we can see everybody needs to have X or be about X. Oh, and here's a here's a kind of large group of people, and they're nowhere near it. What are we doing about it? It does make it very harder to ignore and at the moment that's all very very disparate there isn't a kind of government mandate or institution that that looks at that in any particular way it's not within any of the regulators gifts to opine on adequacy at the moment they're all doing different things clearly there's a lot that's been done in the industry and across different bodies to kind of identify you know here's the gaps here's what we need to do here's but actually we have this sort of national conversation about actually what are we trying to achieve for people when they get to retirement and what does decent look like that really helps taking that point you know we've 
We've got the DWP, the Treasury, HMRC. We've got occupational pensions, private pension system. You know, and, and that's before we even get onto things like the housing market and you know property wealth and how that fits into equation. Do we need a pension commission to own those national objectives that you talked about? We could have a pensions commission to own that national objective. Um, I, I don't think the government would be inclined to have one at, at present. It's sort of shied away from one in, in recent times. I guess ultimately, after you have a commission, somebody does need to own it, unless you set up a new kind of institution, which is like the equivalent of the ABR, for example. Well, yes, um, so that's, that's an argument that's been made. Is we should just yeah. have a standing advisory body that is kind of looking at those national objectives, for example, and and you know informing acting as a convening point to direct people's thinking, oh, because the Treasury worries about Treasury policy and DWP worries about DWP policy, so TPR and so on. So here would be this ongoing pension commission just just advising and, and, and you know, nudging people's thinking in a particular direction. Yeah, I think we're kind of open-minded as to, to, to whether that would work or not. I think it would really depend on um, the kind of mandate and, and the setup. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm not carrying a torch for it. But, uh, people do get quite excited. No, I know they do. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had this pension attention campaign that you guys and the ABI sort of pulled together. Did you meet Big Zoo, by the way? Have you have you met? Have you met? I personally haven't met Big Zoo. Some of the team have have met him. He is apparently the most enormous bundle of energy that you could imagine, which I think you, you see from the uh, from, see from the content actually. And he's a hugger. He is a hugger. Big Zoo is a hugger. So if you if you meet Big Zoo, he's he's likely to hug you. Right. Okay. So. I think that that initiative, that kind of communication side of this challenge of pushing for better engagement and getting people thinking about outcomes and you know how they can own the challenge of living in a DC world and the complexities of, of state pensions and, and you know all the issues around people's financial arrangements. I think that's that's an interesting piece as well. And I know Guy Alphamon was kind of driving that a bit to start with, and now the industry's kind of taken over and run with it. I'll be really interested to see how that aspect you know, that engagement and communication piece evolves as we go forwards from here. Yeah, it's been a, a really enormous and fun project to be working on over the last year or so. I think, as you say, Guy did, a, did an awesome amount to kind of progress the kind of discussion about engagement and how that might look. And obviously we had lots of discussions around, well, you know, whether a statement season or not would be appropriate. Where we ended up was, was with the pension attention campaign, which I think has been really terrific in terms of the engagement we've had from the industry and kind of working cross industry for you know cross bodies for the first time you know with yeah, you know very often. doesn't doesn't happen so often competitor bodies what you might call ourselves uh, and then uh, and good friends actually also but also the uh you guys swap employees all the time between <laughs> abi and tlsa i think that's a pension system issue not a question i think it's it we have a, a small world of uh i'd say but yes yeah no we have we, we've got really really good relationship with lots of the with the abi and, and lots of others uh, which has been terrific and also the kind of providers all coming together kind of brand agnostic trying to make this really happen just to help savers engage with the, with their pensions you know we deliberately went bold and big and different you know we wanted a wanted something that was a bit more kind of eye-catching than, than some of the some traditional financial services advertising i think we're just cogitating on on some of the kind of feedback and the results that we've had through from all of that but it's been a really you know really big success so really pleased that we did it really looking forward to 
the next couple of years with the, with the campaign and, and how we could help. Um, you know, lots of things to think about going forward. Like, and is you the, know, dashboard and other things. But is the funding commitment there to keep it going in next year in the year old? Yes, yeah, so the sort of commitment is there, and, and we're also you know we're open to having conversations with with other people who might want to come in and, and join and support and participate for future years too. So. You know, we'll be saying a little bit more about that, you know, kind of weeks ahead and, and giving people some more kind of readout on how, how everything's gone. Yeah. But it really has been really incredibly positive. You know, we've obviously had the core of the campaign over an incredibly unusual period too, um, you know, starting, you know, obviously with the unexpected death of the Queen and, and kind of and then into the into the election period. So it's been a, the context has been quite difficult and different, but actually it's been a real success. Agreed. And that backdrop of living standards squeeze and people being really focused on the short-term financial concerns. So getting them thinking about what their financial position will be in 30 years' time is quite a challenge in that regard. I think the tone of it actually played out pretty well. It wasn't just hectoring people, give us more contributions. It was much more nuanced than that. So I think it's really good. Thank you. That was, that was kind of, we were very conscious of that. So, so it's pleased to hear it's landed landed that way. So some just one of the I'm conscious of time. So just one of the things I wanted to touch on is pension scheme consolidation, right? So we've got still about five and a half thousand DB schemes somewhere in that territory. That's still an awful lot of occupational pension schemes. We've still got dozens of master trusts, arguably perhaps slightly more than we need. And Around, what, 30,000 defined contribution pension schemes, of which the vast majority have got fewer than 12 members. I mean, to like there's literally tens of thousands of schemes that have just a handful of members. In yeah, them. there's a lot of SASs out there. Yeah, a lot of SASs out there. I'm just kind of really interested. I think, this is, I think there's a broad consensus that getting to a place where we had fewer, bigger, perhaps slightly better run and I use that phrase slightly hesitantly, pension schemes, would not be a bad thing. So I'd be really interested in your take on that. And if you if you agree with that observation, how we get from here to there. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, it's a, it is a big question. You know, we've looked at it in, in kind of various guises in the past. If I think about you know, going back a few years, one of, one of the first things that I did when I joined the PLSA was looking at our defined benefit task force and the work that we did there looking at various forms of consolidation and, and, and what that can mean in, in, in the DB sector. And we've seen some progression in that space since, obviously, one of the recommendations was was the introduction of sort of regime for, for super funds where we've, we've made progress but haven't probably made as much progress as we might have liked over the time. And we've also seen some changes with a little bit more awareness of some of the benefits that you can get from using a, a defined benefit master trust. And obviously, there are different benefits as you kind of go up the scales of consolidation in, in, in that space. Some of that's just buying power. You can negotiate better deals with your suppliers. Uh, you may be able to access different forms of investment and all sorts of other, other things. So there is a degree of kind of ratcheting effects on some of those elements. But I think you know some of the discussion you hear from regulators and sometimes from, from the department is that sort of consolidation at, at all costs is, is is beneficial and i think we we should we shouldn't imagine that small schemes are all you know run badly there are lots of small schemes that are run incredibly well and also that that kind of personal touch between an employer and a, and a scheme 
can be very, very important for all sorts of other reasons beyond just negotiating a, a slightly reduced basis point fee on your investments or something. And the, so, the, what, what what are those reasons? Why why do you think that's still a legitimate argument? I've spoken to smaller schemes. I've spoken to employees of, of smaller schemes in the past, and people like to know who who their provider is and who that person is that they can they can contact quite often. And in a DC context, sometimes what you see is in a smaller scheme, you might have different benefits coming through. So actually the, the employee offer, employer offer, may be higher than kind of just the AE average, which you might get if you're jumped into some big scheme and you're slightly kind of at the end of a long chain. So I think there are lots of pros and cons in all the elements. So I think that just, we just have to be careful when we talk about how schemes are run and the benefits of consolidation, that there are, there are often trade-offs um, and, and it isn't just a, as simple as bigger is better. But, I mean, I can see that we might have some more consolidation in the DB sector in, in different ways. And obviously we have a great big consolidator out there anyway in the in the form of the Pension Protection Fund. But the, it's, uh, not an ideal situation. it's not an ideal situation, but but it's probably also worth saying that the kind of numbers of schemes entering that the PPF is is declined rather rapidly, so consolidation will happen other ways. And obviously, DB funding is in a terrific place at the moment. So the so the most likely outcome is is people will look to kind of buy out a little bit more quickly and be consolidated in that fashion, yeah. or look at the you know potentially a super fund or master trust option. In the DC space, clearly we've had some consolidation of master trusts already following the introduction of the authorization regime. It feels likely that that market will continue to consolidate in, in future years. It's probably all worth also recognizing that the kind of mix of authorized master trusts is a bit of a blend of things. So it's, it is the big master trust as people traditionally think about them, you know, the, the nest people's pensions now, et cetera. But there are, there are a bunch of other people in there who aren't going to be consolidated in the same way. They just happen to fall into a hybrid arrangement for their scheme provision and, and, th- and therefore therefore in there. You know, and what we see more widely is in the kind of DC space is quite a lot of transition from employers moving moving their offering into mass trust. So I think we've seen that already and I can imagine that that form of consolidation will continue to happen over the next three, five, ten years. And so we'll we'll see that rapid market movement, I think, in, in many ways or without having to do much more changing. So you think just basically, you know, let 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 the current trends play through and it will, things will happen naturally. Yeah. I think that, that will that will definitely happen. I mean there are certainly things that DBP are looking at in order to try and accelerate that. And there are kind of questions about kind of how do you look at those very small schemes uh, you know how does that new threshold for demonstrating value for money work and, and what does that mean but i think a lot of that movement will for those types of scheme will, will, would happen automatically so um the nudging might move things a little bit faster but but i think it will happen nonetheless yeah yeah and that that value for money paper i think was originally promised in november but obviously quite quite a lot of disruption has happened since since then. So hopefully we'll still see that before before Christmas, yeah? Yeah, I think we'll probably see it around Christmas time. So, you know, as well as the DBers out there reading the, the purple book, the rest of us can can read the uh, the Value for Money um, document to you over after the King's speech this year. Fair point. In the meantime, then, I'm going to go away and work out how much more tax I'm going to pay. Joe, it's been really good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Doug. It's been a pleasure. 
So there you go. PLSA's policy proposals are on their website. They want to hear what you think, and they're taking feedback until the 31st of March next year. In the meantime, do please like, share, subscribe to this podcast, and leave five-star reviews wherever possible. Thanks for listening.